Due to the subject matter, we advise that children under the age of 12, or those of a sensitive nature, should turn off now. and welcome to the Murder Tales podcast, where we look into the minds and crimes of murderers and serial killers. My name is Chris Britton, and in each episode, I am joined by the criminal historian and the creator of the Murder Tales series of books, H.N. Lloyd. Or as we know him, Lloyd E. How are you doing? I'm all right, thank you very much. Well, we, we, we kind of didn't finish off series two. Yeah, obviously scheduling was an issue, so if you were waiting for the last episode of series two, we decided to kind of throw in an earlier episode. Now, the episode we're doing now, we plan to record in series three but in light of what's happened in the last week in the news we decided that we'll record this one now and release it earlier this means that the first half of series three will follow but it will be in september so we decided to release this kind of like a summer special in a way so for those of you who have seen the shocking story which has been in news for us this is quite a kind of like again a local matter because it does affect Liverpool Women's Hospital and the Countess of Chester. What we're talking about is the conviction of the nurse Lucy Letby. Now we are going to warn you as normal with any of these stories you might find the subject matter upsetting. We are conscious that this is obviously very very close to the recent news however Lucy Letby is not the main context of this episode. No we're going to cover medics in general who have have killed but within the context of Lucy Letby's conviction this week. There, there will be some things which are very very similar so it's one of those things when you are in a medical environment you have a lot of trust in the people who care for you so that could be either a carer who comes to your home, uh, nurses, midwives and even doctors. And there's a huge level of trust there that you put upon those people. For some killers, this is actually a bit of an attraction. And those of you who follow a lot of true crime are familiar that there is a large number of stories where people in a medical profession and those who are in positions of trust take advantage of those positions to kill. Yes, they they are. What I will say, though, is that... that it's an incredibly small fraction of the overall numbers of people in the medical profession who would go on to kill. The fact that they are so, in a way, glamorized by the media and the media attracted to them, it makes it appear that it's more of a problem than it actually is. But you are entirely right. When medics kill, it appears to be, on the whole, a power dynamic going on there you will tend to find that a lot of uh, murderous medical people have an arrogance about them now the case that we're going to move on to to talk about tonight it's been said that lucy letby didn't have that and was as far away removed psychologically from the normal medical professional who would kill but the, the, the general psychology of somebody who has a god complex or an arrogance about them that makes them believe that they have the power over life and death over somebody, an extension of the natural powers that a, a doctor or a nurse would have. So 
Do you want to briefly summarise what's happened in the news this weekend? The story of Lucy Letby kind of first hit the headlines in 2018 when it was announced that a nurse from the Countess of Chester had been arrested and it kind of shocked everyone. It seemed to come from nowhere, this arrest. And then nothing happened for a long, long time. It went very quiet. It went very quiet. And then about two, three years after that, it was this nurse was finally arrested and charged with murder. So in 2012, Lucy Letby qualified as a nurse and she took up a position at the neonatal unit in the Countess of Chester Hospital, which is a hospital just outside of the city of Chester. For the first few years she worked there, things appeared on the surface to be normal. On average, the Countess of Chester Hospital on the neonatal unit would lose on average three children a year, normally due to complications that that led them to be on the ward. However, in the summer of 2015, five babies died in very quick succession. There was five consultants on that ward and they had a quick look at what the common denominators were in these deaths. And there was only one common denominator and that was nurse Lucy Letby. And the consultants began to class Lucy Letby and this is a a quote that they used as a malignant presence on the ward. In fact, one of the consultants walked in on Lucy Letby standing over a baby and watching the baby as they crashed and then had to be resuscitated and the consultant questioned and said why weren't you doing anything and she was like it just happened that the moment you walked in so these five consultants were extremely concerned and they went to the management of the Countess of Cheshire and they said we've got grave concerns about this nurse she is the only common denominator in these deaths and the Countess of Chester's response was to tell the five consultants to stop emailing about the situation. The five consultants were, were completely blown away by this. So they took it upon themselves to go to the Royal College of Paediatrics and ask for a review of the situation. And the Royal College of Paediatrics looked at the situation and they recommended an external review, most appropriately by the police. And the CEO of the Countess of Chester, who was a man called Tony Chambers, ignored that. And one of the senior consultants who was involved in this situation has stated that at this point, the Countess of Cheshire was actively involved in a cover-up. They were highly aware that they had a killer on their ward and they decided they're just going to try and cover this up. And they moved Lucy Letby off active duty and put her in a more administrative role. But the five consultants weren't happy with this and they continued to try and push this. And Lucy Letby, in response, took the five consultants to a grievance. And unbelievably, the Countess of Cheshire found in Lucy Letby's favour and the five consultants had to write a grovelling letter of apology to Lucy Letby to apologise for accusing her of harming these children. Now, the consultants were extremely annoyed about this situation and they were warned in the most clear terms possible, let this drop. You know, if you continue to harass this young nurse, your jobs are on the line. I believe they threatened their careers. They did. Basically, your careers will be over if you continue to to speak out against this nurse. But they were brave, effectively, and they continued to harass and eventually they got the police brought in. Now, the police 
launched what they called Operation Hummingbird. And they did what the consultants had done. And they looked at all the common denominators. So the police concluded over the time frame that the doctors, the consultants already looked at, there had been 17 incidents where children had either died or become so severely ill that they were at the point of death. That had resulted in seven deaths. And the only common denominator on each of those incidents was nurse Lucy Letby. And this is something where it sounds very simplistic, but she was the only person who was there at Mm -hmm. each separate instance. There were nurses who had worked maybe four shifts with her, nurses who had worked three shifts, nurses who had worked two. No other nurse had worked all those 17 shifts. So the police began to do more dinging. They carried out a search of Lucy Letby's house. They discovered that she had effectively been trophy taking and she had taken the notes, what should have been the private notes of the babies who had died and she had kept them in her home. She had also been online and had been searching on social media for the parents of the children who had died. On one occasion, she had searched for the parents on the anniversary of the child's death. They also found, most damningly, a note written by Lucy Letby in which she said, I killed them on purpose because I'm not good enough. I'm evil. I did this. So that was the evidence as it stood. Then they went back and they carried out some forensic tests. And they were able to discover at least one of the babies had been poisoned using insulin. Now, this had been missed originally back in 2015. And the reason why it had been missed was because a junior doctor misinterpreted the test results. And as a result, the death was put down as natural causes and it had been promptly wrapped up without any need for any further examination, autopsies or anything of that nature. However, they now knew for certain that the child had been murdered with foul play. So how they knew that this insulin was natural, when you have natural insulin in your body, you also create another chemical. And this other chemical is there with natural insulin. When you inject somebody with insulin from a bottle, your body, this other chemical doesn't come with the insulin in the bottle. So when you just see pure insulin in somebody's uh, system without this other chemical, you can be fairly sure that the insulin has been artificially given to that person. The court also mentioned that what made it difficult initially was the fact that each of the children's deaths were different. She didn't just use insulin, and this is the quite horrific thing, the, the, the array of ways she was murdering her patients, uh, injecting them with insulin, injecting them with air, so causing air bubbles to form in in their bloodstream, which would then travel to the heart and the brain. And I think most sickeningly of all, some of the victims, she force-fed them to the point of death, which is quite a calculated act that isn't a, a quick kill. You know, that is something that's going to take time, and it's it's taking balls, because you've got to be aware that Another nurse or a doctor could be in at any moment and go, how much are you feeding that baby? What's obvious through this case is how well she's hidden because of an administration. 
mm-hmm. you basically use the HR system to keep going. But not just that. It is, again, going back to that psychology that we discussed before. She is so unlike the psychology of what you would expect uh, a murderous medical profession to be. As one uh, one of the consultants said when he was first told about the concerns about Lucy Letby, he said, oh, not lovely Lucy, because everyone knew her as a loving, smiley, caring, compassionate nurse who went above and beyond. She was always willing to take on that extra shift. We now know why she was willing to take on those extra shifts. At the time, people just thought it was because she cared for the children so much. She was there to go that extra mile. She was challenged as well, wasn't she, about there had been a quick succession of deaths in the same week. And they had a group meeting with her and her colleagues. And one of the doctors actually asked her, how are you going to be able to sleep and, and work after this? And she said, I'll be back on shift tomorrow. Yeah, she she was. That was one of the wake up calls for one of the consultants. She was also in a WhatsApp group chat with the other nurses, where she was talking about the deaths of the babies and basically saying, "Why is it always while well, I'm on shift?" and kind of putting up this kind of "woe is me" type. It's always me that this is happening to. And that's it. I suppose that's the problem you've got is the fact that you can't pinpoint. Particularly, what the psychological issue is, and and why she's done this. It to me, it sounds very narcissistic, as mm. in getting attention. It's not me, and blaming everybody else. And um, I think there's there's something quite telling about her psychology. When she was in the witness box, she gave evidence in her own defence. Uh, over a hundred hours of questioning by uh, the barristers. One of the first questions she was asked was, is there any reason that you cry when you talk about yourself, but you don't cry when talking about these dead and seriously injured children? Let be replied, I have cried when talking about some of the babies. Not that I've cried about the babies. I've cried about all of them. I've cried about some of them, which for me is an interesting psychological answer. Mm. I think the other thing is for me as well was the fact that the going on the attack, literally blaming her colleagues, uh, the cleanliness of the hospital and the unit, the uh, under resources. For me, that was that was very very strange. That that threw me, and, and well, something I didn't expect. Let, to put this into context for our listeners, uh, this we're, we're in August now. The trial has been going on since October last year. It's been nearly a 10-month trial. During the defence, just two witnesses were called. One of those was Lucy Letby, and the other one was hospital janitor, who was willing to testify that the hospital was in a bit of a state. Now, that struck me as odd, that that was the only witness the defence put on the stand. And if anything, it harmed her case, because the answers he was given, it was the classic situation of the defence barrister not being 100% sure what the answer he's going to get from his witness. As if they're kind of monologuing in a way. Mm. So they basically said, yeah, the hospital was in a bit of a state. Yes, there were issues, but it nowhere as near as bad as Lucy Letby was saying. What makes this difficult is the fact that 20 years ago, there was a similar case in Ashton. Beverly Allett. So from the lessons learned from that case, 
there were a lot of things which were supposed to be put in and implemented within the NHS to protect patients. But what I found really, really shocking from this was the fact that those actions have only been implemented in the last few months. Yes. I mean, Beverly Allett was a slightly different case. Beverly Allett uh, murdered babies who were on her ward. However, her reasons for doing it was that she suffered from uh, Munchausen by proxy. So she enjoyed inserting herself into the drama. She enjoyed kind of almost trying to feeding off 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 the the illness and the upset that the family had and the, the children had. Whereas Lucy Letby quite clearly didn't suffer from that condition. She was quite happy to kind of sink into the background once she had murdered the the, the children. Uh, she wasn't the kind of involving herself in the drama in fact one of the consultants said that as the ba- one of the babies was crashing she was Lu- lucy letby was quite useless and just sank into the background yeah well i was going to say but there might be an argument from what you're saying over over that is the fact that she might have not done it directly and been there while the doctor was there but then she did insert herself into the drama afterwards the mm. fact that, as you just mentioned before about the WhatsApp group, why is it always happening on my shift? Mm. She also sent messages of condolences to the victims' families and would go in and make comments about when one of the mothers was washing the, 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 the body of the one of the murdered children. She commented that she was the person who'd given the child their first wash and now she was witnessing the last wash. I don't think that was an attempt to assert herself into the situation. I think that was more just her enjoying some 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 callous cruelty i i think looking at the psychology of lucy letby and looking at where the murders happened and the times the murders have happened i think she was using the murders as a stress relief a way of releasing pressure and stress that built up in her life and there are there is presence with killers doing that we saw peter sutcliffe would use the murders as a way of relieving internal pressures in his life to a lesser degree it's a very different type of killer but dennis raider the bind torture kill killer again long gaps between his his murders but when he's using the murders he's doing it for a very specific reason release of pressure dennis nilsson to a, to to some degree was using the murders to release pressures in his life but why i've, I've moved on to beverly allen is the fact that there was safeguarding concerns from there which, if they've been put in place, should have prevented some of these deaths. There was a strikingly similar case which occurred uh, a number of years ago. It was a it was a nurse uh, who worked in Stockport, actually, chap by the name of Victoriano Chow. Now he again was caught via the method of looking at what shifts he'd worked on and realising that he was the only common denominator uh, on the shifts where two patients had died. Now, he, I think, was ultimately uh, convicted of murdering two and attempting to murder 19 patients. Again, if these safeguards had been put in place, he wouldn't have been able to kill his victims. Another frightening thing about uh, the Chow case he uh, was a, a foreign national who had come over to work in the NHS. The background checks carried out on him were so poor, they actually wondered if he was actually a qualified nurse 
or had just rocked up with some fake credentials and they just believed him. Uh, and they never really did get to the bottom of that. Most people believe he, he wasn't a properly qualified nurse. But if we if we discuss Be- the Beverly Allitt case, uh, which which is probably the most similar. So Beverly Allitt uh, was a uh, nurse who worked on a neonatal unit. She murdered four children. She attempted to murder five and had six counts of grievous bodily harm when she was injecting her patients with insulin. Now, as I've said before, she had Munchausen by proxy, so she was very much inserting herself into the investigations. But as we've seen, her crimes are very similar to Lucy Letby in that they involved injecting things into patients. Now, after the um, conviction of Beverly Allett, promises were made that this would never be able to happen again. They would put things in place whereby this wouldn't happen. And then all of a sudden, you did see that there was a tightening of rules on hospital wards. Medicine would be locked away. Uh, You know, nurses had to count out the medications they were giving to people rather than it before being a much more ad hoc style basis so there were improvements but as we've now seen nowhere near uh, enough that there needed to be to stop something like this from happening again a part of those rules was the fact of independent reviews and done quickly Mm. but as we saw in this case uh, the countess of cheshire hospital actively tried to engage in a cover-up now it has been a hospital that for quite some time has had a rather bad reputation uh, a bit of a failing hospital and i think they were scared of even more damage occurring to their reputation so therefore they have put their patients at risk by doing everything they actively could to stop these investigations that should have taken place from happening promptly. Okay, so far we've spoken about two cases which have involved nurses, but it's not always nurses who commit these crimes. No, uh, doctors are the most prevalent perpetrators of these types of crimes, and there are several uh, quite high profile and some forgotten cases where, where doctors have killed. So that sounds like a good time to take a break. And welcome back. So just before the break, you, you mentioned about that medical murders tend to be committed by doctors rather than nurses. Mm. Is there normally a more common format that you see within those cases? Well, as I alluded to before, that normally the, the psychological traits of murderous doctors is arrogance, a kind of belief that they have a right to do what they want. Harold Shipman, obviously, is the most obvious person to single out uh, when it comes to, to, to uh, the arrogance of a doctor leading to, to, to murder. Now, Harold Shipman is quite possibly one of the most uh, prolific serial killers in the world. He It's estimated that he killed hundreds of his patients. Now, when he, he murdered his patients, it became a, a running joke 
with the local undertakers that this is a shipment. They would walk in and the victims would all be the same. They'd be fully dressed, sat in a chair with their arm rolled up, uh, the, the, the sleeve rolled up as if they'd just received an injection. And the common joke became, it's a shipment. And in fact, it was because of a local undertaker raising concerns that Chipman's crimes were ultimately uncovered. That and the fact that he got greedy. Essentially, Shipman had always liked to take stuff, trinkets from his victims, little pieces of jewellery, things that wouldn't be missed, which he'd then give to his wife. However, eventually he began to get greedy and he began to write out wills, saying that his patients had left him virtually everything that they, they had in the world. Obviously, relatives became suspicious of this and it led to Shipman's downfall. Ultimately, Harold Shipman was convicted of murdering 15 of his patients. Uh, it's believed that he's murdered up to 250 of his patients between 1975 and 1998. Interestingly, with Shipman, his crimes began through a bizarrely and macabre sense of altruism and trying to help people. Shipman had watched his mother die extremely painfully of cancer. And that deeply affected Shipman. And it's been postulated that a lot of the earlier victims, and maybe up until his later victims, when his greed got the better of him, he was actually seeing himself as some sort of um, bringer of peace to these elderly patients of his, because the majority of his victims were very elderly women. And that he was helping to end the pain. Now, the fact that most of his victims were, for their age, relatively fit and healthy is, um, some people say that, that that shows that to be a lie. However, I think that there is quite a good argument to say that, that in his own warped mind, he believed he was releasing them from suffering. Talking about the arrogance of murderous doctors, a case I find fascinating is a character called Giza de Kaplani. Now, Giza de Kaplani was a Hungarian who, after the communist uprising in Hungary in the mid-20th century, moved to America. Now, in his native Hungary, Giza de Kaplani had been a surgeon, and he expected to... Uh, turn up in America and he would be allowed to be a heart surgeon in America as he had been in Hungary. However, America refused to accept his qualifications and so he had to settle for being an anaesthetist, which was a job he thought was well beneath him. He also moved in exclusive circles in the Hungarian emigre population where he began to tell people that he was part of the aristocracy and that the reason why he'd fled Hungary was because he'd been endangered by the communist uprisers. What's more likely is the fact that he was part of that uprising and then had to flee when for a period it looked like that, that uprising was going to fail. He was a bit of a playboy, Dr. Dicaplani. Uh, he liked beautiful women and eventually he did marry a very beautiful woman uh, who was by the name of Hajna. Now, she was part of the Hungry uh, emigre community. 
unfortunately, the marriage wasn't very happy, and Hajna eventually had an affair. Now, when Dr. De Kaplani found out about this, he decided to deal with the situation in the most horrendous way possible. He effectively anesthetized his wife and then began to make insertions into her face with a scalpel. And then under the skin, he injected sulfuric acid so that her face eventually began to melt from the inside. And then he began to do that all over her body. And it took her several days to die. Dr. De Caplani didn't deny that he'd done this. In fact, he kind of believed that it, it was his right, that his wife was his property, and that he had a right to destroy her beauty and to take her life as he saw fit. Now, you would think that a man like Giza de Caplani would be held in prison for the rest of his life. But what actually happened is that only a few short years after he died, he was released from prison. And he was released from prison and he was promptly persuaded to leave the country where he moved to Taiwan. He was then doctoring Taiwan for a number of years, but then he disappeared. Interpol tried to look for him because they wanted to keep tracks on him. And then they believed that he'd actually uh, joined up and was as fighting the communist forces in South America and had become some sort of bomb expert there. Uh, and then most latterly, he moved to Bavaria, uh, where he lived out the rest of his life. What's common here is the fact that they also seem to be able to get away with what they've done because of their position. Not just their position, but their charm uh, and the, the, the guile. Doctors have to be very persuasive people. They have to walk into a room and people have to have implicit trust in them. Because if you had a doctor and you thought, well, he's a bit of a nervous ninny. I don't trust what he's saying or what he's doing. How can I be sure his diagnosis is correct? So they do develop this arrogance, this kind of persona of you have to trust me. And I think that in situations like Harold Chipman, like Dr. De Caplani, that kind of works in their favour. Another fascinating case is, is one that took place in a town called Southport, which is just 20 miles or so up the uh, Liverpool coast from us. And that was a case of a uh, Dr. Clements, who had spent his entire life as a, a doctor who would, would put his female patients at ease and was known to have a very good bedside manner. He also had a habit of marrying patients and those patients quickly dying. And obviously, eventually, this caught up with him uh, and they carried out tests on the bodies. And lo and behold, if he hadn't been poisoning his wives over the years. But again, he was said to be a doctor who was extremely charming, extremely kind of loved by his patients. And that's the thing with Harold Chipman. His patients adored him. Yes, they said he could be very arrogant. Yes, he could be very offhanded, but they adored him and they trusted him implicitly. He was known for being very abrasive with his colleagues. He was very rude and very abrasive. And this is he, where we have have a difference between him and Lucy Letby, is the fact that she was quite popular. Yeah, and this is what I said before. She didn't have that arrogance. She was, uh, as I said, 
lovely Lucy. People have gone through her social media since all this has happened. And there's photos of her out and about, enjoying herself with friends, enjoying cocktails, laughing, joking, having a good time. All the photographs of Harold Chipman, he he is invariably looks like a grumpy old man. He, he's got a dour frown on his face on, on every single photo of him, even when we, you know, before he, he fell into trouble with the law. And that's another interesting thing with Harold Shipman and the Lucy Letby case, the amount of time it took from the, the, the initial story breaking in the media to the suspect being arrested. I said before, with Lucy Letby, the first rumblings were in 2018 that there were some issues from the Countess of Chester it wasn't until 2020 that Lucy Letby was arrested and I'm sure you remember the news conferences with Harold Shipman where he came outside of his surgery and he stood talking to the press basically saying that he didn't know what all the fuss was about and he was sure it would all be uh, you know sorted there is that pattern as well. There's also the pattern there where there's it's suspected that they had killed their previous employers. Obviously, both of them were, uh, Lisa Letby worked within the NHS, but she went from Liverpool Women's Hospital to the Countess of Cheshire. Where, where we stand at the moment, Lucy Letby has been convicted of murdering seven children, uh, attempting to murder six more. The police have gone over here in Korea and they've looked at the deaths that have occurred where Lucy Letby has been unemployed, and they now suspect that she may have murdered up to 13 children, two of which occurred while she was training at the Liverpool Women's Hospital. Now, the Cheshire police say that they have contacted the families of the two children that they suspect that she murdered whilst working there, and that they are supporting the families. Whether any further charges will come from this I don't know. Unfortunately, we have a terrible history in this country of once somebody has been convicted, turning a blind eye to anything else. They tend to use that phrase, it isn't in the interest of justice to proceed with the prosecution. They think about the cost of another trial. How many millions would it cost to put Lucy Letby on trial again when we know she's already going to be in prison for the rest of her natural life? I suppose as well, it's a case of the government and the NHS would want this to go away, but it's not going to be the case. Well, exactly. I think the Countess of Chester would be very happy if this would go away. I don't. I hope, certainly hope it isn't. There have been calls from the chief prosecutor of the Lucy Letby case uh, for the chief executive of the Countess of Chester Trust, who was a chap called Tony Chambers. There have been calls for him to be uh, charged with uh, manslaughter on the grounds that his actions did allow Lucy Letby to murder more children. The CEO took over from Tony Chambers, a lady called Dr Susan Gilby, who is a bit of an unsung hero of this case, who basically supported the doctors involved and basically said, yeah, you're right, get the police in. When the Countess of Chester realised what she was doing, they dismissed her. She is now suing the Countess for uh, wrongful dismissal. So let's hope that she gets the right results. I mean, I know we say the CEOs of of, of, uh, NHS trusts are paid far too much, but I think after what that lady has been through, 
when all she tried to do was get the truth out there and, and save more innocent children, she deserves some recompense. My concern is that knowing full well that historically that this has happened before, that lessons won't be learned and somebody takes advantage of their position and does something like this again. I think you are entirely right there. I think, sadly, where there is a will, there is a way. And if you get a doctor or a nurse who is determined enough and has that compunction to kill, they will find a way to do it and do it in a way that they don't get caught. Or at least it would be very difficult for them to be caught without a lot of time and effort being put into detecting the crimes. Professor Keith Simpson, who is a famous forensic pathologist, in fact, he he said as much as that. Uh, he, he is quoted as saying, if doctors, or, or, or in this case, if members of the medical profession do take the law into their own hands, the facts are only likely to emerge by chance through the whisper of suspicion, rarely through carelessness. It is a very upsetting case. And for anyone who loses, who has a family member who's been murdered, it's very difficult, let alone a newborn baby who's fighting for their life anyway. You destroy somebody's family. You destroy the, the potential of what that, that baby could have been, the family life that they would have had, their brothers and sisters that will always have that hole in their life. Mm-hmm. And and it, it's it's a very callous, callous murder. There is one more thing before we wrap this up. It's the the fact that Lucy Letby was unwilling to stand and hear her sentencing. I know this is not forced in uh, in this country. It's something that's becoming more and more prevalent. In fact, I I acutely aware of a case. It wasn't a murder case, but it was a case recently where the person accused refused to come up for the trial. Until that person has been in the dock and identified themselves, there's no case to answer for a contempt of court. So what did you what do you do in a situation like that? And in, in the end, they decided take the trial to them in the cells. But you can't do that for a case like Lucy Letby, where there's so many interested parties, where the the, the sentence should be read out in open court, not in the privacy of, of a cell. I, I I I don't like to get political on this this podcast. This isn't a party political podcast we are we try to be bipartisan the the labor party did have plans that would have put things in place to to stop this sort of thing from happening where it would have legally forced people to be placed in the dock to hear their sentencing and unfortunately that that was voted down last year by the incumbent conservative government uh the labor have promised that they will bring that that law back through the, the, the parliament if they're, they're voted in at the next general election. We'll have to wait and see how that, that turns out. Right. But I do think something needs to happen to stop this from happening. It happened a couple of months ago, the shooting that happened on the Wirral at Christmas. The person responsible for that, Thomas Cashman, he refused to enter the dock to hear his sentence. Also the killer of Olivia Pratt-Corbell. Mm-hmm. So it's becoming it's becoming a trend, which needs to be stopped. I think it's it's very insulting and very painful to the victims' families because it is, it's an ultimate two fingers up from the killer. Well, it's all about power and control. At the end of the day, once you are, 
somebody is aware that their liberty is going to be taken away from them for a very long time, they will then try and wrestle back control in any way they can. And little acts of defiance then become very important to those individuals. And one of those little acts of defiance is refusing to go into the courtroom to hear what their sentence will be. And ultimately, it's the families of the victims and and their loved ones who suffer as a result of those power games. Okay, Lloyd, I think that's a good place to finish it. If any of the listeners would like to know a little bit more about some of the cases we've touched on this evening, then they may find the book Murder Tales, Deadly Doctors and Lightning. It touches upon Harold Shipman, Marcel Petiot, who's another fascinating case. It's a good book on the subject. Or I would recommend a book called Murderous Medics by the wonderful Martin Fido. He's an absolute hero of mine. He's the guy who inspired me to become a crime historian. Okay. If you have any questions, feedback or concerns, you can get in contact with us by going to at Murder Tales Pod, or you can get in contact with Lloydie directly by going to HN Lloyd 1. And we will be back at the end of September with the rest of Series 3. So until then, I've been Chris Britton and he's been HN Lloyd. Evening all. If you enjoyed the show, please go onto iTunes and leave us a lovely five-star review. And even better, click on that subscribe button so you don't miss any future episodes. Or subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. The Murder Tales podcast is based around the criminal history books by HN Lloyd. If you'd like to get your hands onto them, you can click on the Amazon link on our Twitter page. This show was presented, edited, and produced by Chris Britton, who's created, written, and co-presented by the author H.N. Lloyd. Our theme was New World Order by Neil Roberts Music. The Mother Tales podcast is part of the P-Pod Casting Network. You can check out our other shows, such as the pub politics podcast or even the tragical history tour all you have to do is go and search on your favorite podcast provider